Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Thank you, choir. Hear today's reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I 
have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends, using the authority of Jesus, our master. I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with one another. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's family brought up a most disturbing report to my attention, that you're frightening amongst yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric on my own, less powerful action at the center. Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. The message points to Christ on the cross. That seems easier like sheer stillness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works. And most powerfully, as it turns out, it's written. I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as shams. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all of its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God. God and his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered stupid, preaching of all things, to bring salvation to those who trust him into the way of salvation. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ, the crucified. Jews treat it like an anti-miracle, and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom, all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so cheap, so impotent, next to the seemingly absurdity of God. Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Thus ends the reading. So the series comes a new meditative song that we're going to sing together as we move from scripture into the sermon. So we'll learn it this week and sing together over the course of the next five weeks. God of justice, Savior to all, came to rescue the weak and the poor. 
chose to serve and not be served Jesus you have called us freely we've received now freely we will give we must go live to feed the hungry stand beside the Last spring, several of us lead pastors from the largest United Methodist churches in the country got together on a conference call to talk about the upcoming election cycle that would be happening this fall and about how we might be able to lead our, conversa- our congregations through uh, conversations and actions that would model justice and kindness and humility. And each of our congregations, of course, are represented across the theological and political spectrum. And each of us as pastors have very different perspectives on both. And yet we, uh, even despite serving very different congregations, we did agree that we have the obligation to leverage our platforms and our uh, positions as leaders in our communities to, uh, to move people, to commit our congregations to just and faithful conversations, this election cycle. And some of us on that call agreed uh, to loosely preach a sermon series around a very familiar passage for many of us. It comes from Micah 6, 8, in which the prophet Micah says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Given the diversity of our congregations, our sermons are going to look much different, but in some way we will focus on a few very key questions. The first is, what is the common good? What do we mean by the common good? And what are some of our shared commitments as Christians to the common good? The second is, how can we love alike even though we don't necessarily think alike? And finally, how can we promote more light than heat when we talk about the issues that matter most to us? And so over these five weeks here at St. Andrew, we will be doing what everyone seems to say can't be done and shouldn't be done, and if it is done, then I am done. (laughs) And that's to talk about politics and church. Did your blood pressure just go up? (laughs) If it did, don't worry. By the time we're done today, none of you will like me, okay? (laughs) If your blood pressure did go up, it's likely because human history is plagued, plagued by, by, by leaders and by tribes who have conflated religion and politics in ways that fuel their own political or religious ambitions and agendas. 
And from Constantine in the 4th century to crusaders in the Middle Ages, uh, from uh, Christian Nazis in Germany to Christian nationalists in America. We know that whenever we mix politics and religion together, we come up with this toxic, this toxic concoction that is almost inevitably deadly. We follow a Jesus, I will remind you today, we follow a Jesus who rejected any cozy alliance between faith and empire, between Yahweh and Caesar, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. But can we please be honest about one thing? Jesus lived in a profoundly politically and militarily tumultuous time. And we forget this as modern Christians in America. Because of the the context in which Jesus preached and lived and taught, there is not a single teaching of Jesus that can be discounted as purely spiritual or apolitical. Every word that Jesus spoke had profound political and social implications. And because he and his Jewish people were living under Roman occupation, he understood that his people weren't free. There was no justice for his people. His people didn't have any legal rights. They didn't even have any human rights. They weren't even citizens in their own land. They were brutalized and crucified on street corners every day. I want you to imagine for a minute that your daily reality includes tanks and tear gas and daily terror. And a preacher comes into town and he says, hey, look, I, I, know, that you, I know that you can't afford to feed your family. And I know that your son was brutalized once again by a Roman soldier. I know your young daughter has been taken as collateral because you haven't been able to pay the Roman tax. But can we just keep all this spiritual? I mean, do we have to get political about this stuff? Would you call that preacher Messiah? Whenever Jesus spoke, even words that seemed spiritual were undeniably charged with social and political implications. But here's the deal. Unlike all those that came before Jesus and all those that came after, Jesus didn't preach a political ideology. Jesus preached a politics of compassion. And it looked like this. Jesus believed that the only way that he could ever save his people from utter destruction and death, the only way was to teach his people how to love the enemy and to love them long enough until their hearts and their minds and their ways were finally transformed. So Jesus came to play the long game to love the world long enough until the world finally was a place of love. And it was a radical experiment. And for that experiment to work, Jesus couldn't fall into the trap of our modern-day politics. Today, we know this. Politics 
is warfare. And it's always aimed at destroying the opponent and wielding power and clinging to power and then taking power from those that are in power. And there are three essential weapons for today's modern political warfare. We know them. Fear, outrage, and hate. But Jesus never made it about turning the tables or defeating the enemy. His singular strategy was not to destroy the opponent, but to transform him. And his unique instrument was not a weapon, but a cross. And his ultimate aim was not to win power, but to establish what all the prophets before him described as shalom. This is our word for today, shalom. What is shalom? From the beginning of time, the beginning of the Hebrew thought, shalom has often been translated as peace. But peace is, I think, an inadequate translation. We think of peace often as the absence of conflict. But you can be, we know this, we can be conflict-free and still lack a sense of peace in our lives. There might still be a sense of being unsettled about something. Something just might be missing. Oh, things are relatively peaceful. But something's not right. Shalom means something like to make a thing whole. It's a sense of an experience of wholeness or fullness or completeness. Often we describe it as well-being. But I don't think any of those little descriptors quite get to the profoundly radical and counterintuitive nature of shalom. In the the Hebraic way of thinking, this fullness, this completeness, this well-being that we call shalom is a result of the joining together of opposites or ostensibly opposing forces. And there's a vision throughout the book of all the prophets that that speak of this bringing together of opposites. I think it's best captured in the most familiar of all passages from Isaiah for most of us. Um, We read it almost every Advent season or at Christmas. It is the passage in which Isaiah speaks of the peaceable kingdom, where he says, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Wait, what? What? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion are going to feed together. The cow and the bear will will graze together in a field. Uh, A nursing child will play Legos right over the snake's hole. Uh, Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. And there won't be anybody harming each other anywhere on my holy mountain. These are things that we would consider to be complete opposites. And they're all in one place at peace in each other's presence. And we'd say there is no way that any of these opposites could coexist. Wolves and lambs? Leopards and and goats? Toddlers and snakes? Liberals and conservatives? Oath keepers and pacifists? Even Coke and Pepsi drinkers? What's going on? 
We say it's a pipe dream. But all the prophets said, no, this is going to happen. Wholeness, well-being, shalom. It will happen when the Messiah comes. And then the Messiah came. He had a name, Jesus. He came from a, a real place called Nazareth. And he preached shalom. And he brought opposites together. Jews and Gentiles. That was radical. Rich and poor. Male and female. Those were not to be mixed up. Priests and lepers. The clean and the unclean. Pharisees and Roman soldiers. But he went even further. He brought together enemies. Lots and lots of enemies. And he said, love each other. Feed one another. Eat with one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. And suffer for one another. And Jesus said, do this long enough and do it relentlessly enough. And the distance between you will be overcome. And the differences between you, they won't be erased, but they will be eclipsed by the experience of shalom. And this was a radical idea that failed miserably. The Messiah came and his people rejected him. They rejected him because they couldn't imagine how this radical idea of bringing together opposites could actually work. Instead, many of them broke into various ideological camps. Today we might call them political parties. There was one party, it was called the Galileans. They were the extreme right fanatics of their day, the violent insurrectionists, the armed soldiers who opposed Roman occupation. And they all had yard signs. And on the yard signs it read, uh, Galilee for Galileans, and there was a fist. And they led many unsuccessful rebellions and many dead rebels were draped in patriotic flags. There was another party called the Herodians. They aligned themselves, as you might imagine, with the puppet King Herod, a Jewish king put in place by the empire. They had yard signs as well. Uh, Their yard sign read law and order. They were the law and order party. And they knelt and bent the knee to Caesar. And they said that Jesus was a fanatic. They said Jesus was a fanatic for practicing and preaching shalom. There was another party, they were called the Zealots. They were the, maybe the extreme left you might say. The, the, the next level extremists and terrorists. They had no conscience, they would resort to anything and everything necessary to overthrow the Romans. They didn't care about the collateral damage of car bombs or sacrificing their own lives for their holy war. They had yard signs also, but the homeowners association made them take them down because they were just, (laughs) they were scaring small children. There were other familiar parties, you've heard of them, Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, and they all divided up according to their own religion and their practices and beliefs. They had yard signs as well. Only no one even cared to read them. And so opposites remained opposites and the idea of shalom failed and the Messiah was was crucified. 
He was crucified by two groups of people, the Roman oppressors who had the power and the Jewish oppressed who sought it. And millions and millions have come to know him ever since. And some of them have even come to believe in him, but very few of them have come to trust in his radical, divinely hatched idea called shalom. This idea that love can bring together opposites and turn enemies into friends and create a world where opposing ideas are eclipsed by the peace of God. Shalom, we know it just doesn't happen by itself. The thing that we long for, we must work for. Frederick Nietzsche once wrote about the long obedience in the same direction, this idea of playing the long game, which makes our lives worth living and our world worth living in. And some people call that the common good. All the prophets, a handful of saints and sinners and martyrs along the way have given their lives to it. People like the Apostle Paul in today's reading. It's a wonderful little passage. Paul speaks into this major debate, this major disagreement among early Christians in Corinth, all about the power of God and how it's experienced. And all these Christians, they're caught up in this really absurd partisan disagreement. Each of them belong to their own theological parties. And some say, I'm on Paul's team. And somebody else says, I'm on Apollos' team. Oh, I'm on Peter's team. And there's a group that has the audacity to say, uh, we are on the Jesus team. As if we're the real Christians and the rest of you are just posers. Does this sound familiar? This is our world. And so Paul says, let me tell you as urgently as I can, you must get along with each other. You must learn to cultivate a life in common, a life in common, the common good. And all these different groups opposing perspectives and opinions and experiences are called by Paul to come together in shalom. And whether we're talking about theological differences or political differences, Paul suggests that the shalom that we all long for comes through the cross of Christ. This radical symbol of how Jesus, instead of reaching for power, laid down his power so that we could be gathered up by God in love. And Paul doesn't care about your opinions or your perspectives. He doesn't care about your party. He doesn't care about your big ideas about how you think the world should work. Paul says, lay it all down. Stop your need for being right and pay attention to the relationships that are between you. Because your, your great ideas won't create shalom. Why? Because shalom isn't something we can create. Shalom is an experience. And it's an experience that we can only have when our relationships with each other are right. Like every generation that has come before us, we all have very strong ideas about what our society should look like. We assume the common good is an object that we, that we create with a bunch of great ideas. And it, we, we think that it, it actually is a thing 
It's a thing that looks and works a certain way, like an engine maybe. And we use different words to describe the various parts of that thing, that engine. Some people would say, I like freedom. Others would say equality, justice, the American dream, less government, a social safety net, a strong defense, free markets. We all have these ideas. And then we go about building a society around these ideas. Only maybe it happens that our side loses and that great thing that we were building is suddenly doesn't look like what we had envisioned it to look like. And it gets torn apart by the winning team and replaced by their parts and their ideas. But we wait it out and long enough, our side wins maybe, and we try to dismantle the thing that the other side has built. And we replace it with our parts, which all, of course, are much better than their parts. And we've been doing this since the beginning of time. Back and forth. And this is why the people of Jesus' day rejected the idea of shalom. All those parties said, I like my parts better. My ideas. My ideology. Only shalom isn't built with ideas or ideology. Shalom is the quality of our relationships between the parts. It is the relationships that hold all those disparate, opposing parts together. If this doesn't make any sense, let me try to really stump you. Um, an offer, uh, let me offer a, a, an image of what shalom, the common good, might look like. The ancient Greeks, they had this, they came up with this really great thought experiment. It was a puzzle, a paradox. They called it the ship of Theseus. Theseus. It sounds like a Game of Thrones character, doesn't it? So if that helps, think of a Game of Thrones character who had a ship and he had all kinds of great adventures at sea, but he finally decided uh, to hang it up and retire. And as he came into port, he, uh, he retired his, his ship and it was preserved for centuries by the Athenians. And as you might imagine, as ships, you know, experience uh, bad weather, a lot of ocean air, all that salt, it begins to deteriorate the ship. And so over time, each plank of the ship's hull was replaced when it started to rot, one by one over many years until eventually, eventually not a single one of those original planks was left. And the paradox of the ship of Theseus raised the question, if you're replacing the parts of Theseus' ship, at what, point, at what point does the ship cease to be Theseus' ship? Well, some people said, if you replace even one plank, it's no longer Theseus' ship. It's different. Others said, you could replace all the planks and it's still Theseus' ship because of the idea of the ship itself. Uh, later on, the great philosopher Thomas Hobbes, he really threw a monkey wrench into this debate. He said, what if uh, when all the rotten planks were replaced, some wise guy snuck in and, and took all the rotten ones and then preserved them and then reused them to build another ship? And he called it Theseus' ship. Which ship would be the real Theseus' ship? 
if they had ever asked Jesus how to solve the paradox of the ship of Theseus, he would say this, it's not about the planks at all. Some of those planks are rotten and they need replacing, but the planks don't make the ship. The planks don't even make the ship float. It's how the planks relate to all the other planks that make a ship a ship. And this is shalom. It's the relationships that make up and sustain the common good. The Apostle Paul was trying to say, we're all in the same boat. In fact, we're all, we're all in the same storm. And we are only as well as the relationships that we share with those others who are in the ship to which we all belong. And we can't just replace bad planks with good planks and expect the ship to sail better. America is not a ship made of planks. America is this complex vessel of crazy opposing ideas and relationships that are all brought together and held together by our shared commitment to the common good. So let me give you a few takeaways for the long game. Value relationships over being right. Be curious about your opposites and seek shalom over power. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.